You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Our theme today is justice and social justice as these virtues pertain to the attainment of the common good. I think you will see from our treatment of these two subjects why they require a whole lecture. Now much of my lecture will rely on Augustine and Aquinas to explain Catholic teaching on justice. Such terms as justice, distributive justice, and commutative justice will be explained. The latter part of the lecture makes an argument for interpreting social justice in the light of what Aquinas said about legal justice. Now, many people speak endlessly of justice, especially social justice, without saying what it is or without even feeling the need to ask about its nature. In one respect, justice is now like pornography. People say they can't give a definition, but they know it when they see it. Justice doesn't have to remain so mysterious. We can all profitably turn to Thomas Aquinas for assistance in clarifying the nature of justice and its various dimensions. He may not have said everything we need to know today, but he did make many apt observations about justice, legal justice, distributive justice, and commutative justice that are unambiguous and illuminating. Aquinas gets to the heart of the matter with the basic definition of justice, a habit whereby an individual renders to each one his due or right, that is, yus, R-U-S, by a constant and perpetual will. This may be the most oft-quoted definition of justice and the one most generally understood. It follows that justice is about those things that have to do with our relations with one another. The word right in the definition, of course, is not synonymous with the modern concept of rights, but refers to the just thing itself. While justice, properly speaking, governs the relation of one person or entity to another, it can also be understood in a metaphorical sense as the virtue regulating diverse principles of action, such as the reason, the irascible or spirited or contending appetite, and the concupiscible or desiring or impulse appetite as though they were so many agents. In other words, justice governs the relations among the various powers of the soul. So that metaphorically, in one and the same person, there is said to be justice insofar as the reason commands the irascible appetite and concupiscible appetite, and these obey reason. And in general, insofar as to each part of man is ascribed what is becoming to it. And a just man reason then would in turn be subject to God's will known through faith. The connection between these two kinds of justice can be simply stated. Without order in their soul, people will not be inclined to give others their due. In other words, unless people are virtuous, they will not have any interest in practicing justice. More about this point later. This concept of justice as order in the soul of individuals needs to be rediscovered today. There are several reasons for this. First, it enables us to understand better the meaning of justice as used in the New Testament. Aquinas explains, the justice which faith works in us is that whereby the ungodly is justified. It consists in the due coordination of the parts of the soul. Now this belongs to justice metaphorically understood, 
which may be found even in a man who lives by himself. We capture this sense of justice when we speak of the just person in our ordinary speech. The just person is the one who possesses all the virtues and therefore inclined to give others their due. Second, the political and social significance of justice as order in the soul can be readily perceived by examining Augustine's first definition of a republic given in the city of God. You will recall, a republic is the will of the people, a people is an assemblage associated by a common acknowledgement of right and a community of interest. Right means justice and justice is order in the soul brought about by the practice of the theological and cardinal virtues. Augustine maintains that the attainment of justice in a political community depends on the presence of justice in the souls of individuals. Otherwise stated, justice in the political and social order cannot be attained by simply relying on changing laws and structures. As the crisis in corporate America shows, laws and regulations cannot make up for the dishonesty of chief executive officers and their accountants. Today, there is a lot of talk about giving people their due, usually under the rubric of social justice. There is not, however, a corresponding enthusiasm for achieving order in our souls, even though many people readily understand that some don't receive what is just because others don't want to give it to them. The reluctance to give, if it doesn't proceed from ignorance, is caused by disordered passions in the soul. People with disorder in their souls will not be inclined to give others their due. Ordinary speech makes this same judgment when it blames an unjust situation on the corruption of leaders. Thomas Aquinas clarifies this point in his treatment of the connections among the virtues. For example, he makes the common sense observation that fear and desire, if not governed by fortitude and temperance, often lead people to injustice. He expresses this point nicely in his disputed questions on virtue, translated by Ralph McInerney. And the important passage reads as follows, but the principles of morals are so interrelated to one another that the failure of one would entail the failure in others. For example, if one were weak on the principle that concupiscence is not to be followed, which pertains to desire, then sometimes in pursuing concupiscence, he would do injury and thus violate justice. In other words, excessive love of pleasure and money can lead people to harm others or to neglect their needs. Similarly, people may have to overcome their own fears in order to protect others from being harmed in some way. For example, a young person may know that his friends are wrong to pick on a weaker kid, but hesitates to speak up for fear of being excluded from his group. An advisor to a president may hesitate to speak the truth in front of his boss about some injustice for fear of losing his influence or his job. Road rage often leads to injury or death on the nation's highways. It is patience, a dimension of fortitude, that enables a person both to control his anger in the face of provocation and to persevere in the face of opposition. Without sufficient patience, a person may not persevere in the struggle to make sure that others receive their due. The principal of a school, for example, may lack the patience to hire good teachers or to make sure that his school really delivers a quality education takes a lot of patience to sit in on interviews and to make sure that you hire the right person. The connection of prudence with justice is especially pertinent. Aquinas distinguishes ordinary prudence from political prudence. He says that everyone in the state of grace has sufficient prudence to do what is required for his own salvation, 
But not everyone has the political prudence to discern the requirements of the common good. In Aquinas' words, there is also another diligence which is more than sufficient, whereby a man is able to make provision both for himself and for others, not only in matters necessary for salvation, but also in all things relating to human life. And such diligence as this is not in all who have grace." End quote. Such diligence may be acquired over time with the right kind of experience and instruction. In matters of prudence, man stands in very great need of being taught by others, especially elders who have acquired a sane understanding of the ends in practical matters. In Thomas's terminology, long experience of singulars is necessary to become a prudent person. Wise older people with much experience of the world are apt instructors of the young. It logically follows that understanding books written by those who have wisdom on matters pertaining to the common good is an excellent way of seeking political prudence. The Old Testament story of David and Abigail sheds a clear light on the relation of prudence and justice. While David and his men were living in the wilderness, they had shown respect for the property of Nabal and even protected his sheep and goats. On a feast day, David sent 10 young men to ask Nabal to give them what he could spare. Nabal refused and even insulted David. The latter resolved to take vengeance on Nabal and all the men working for him. When Abigail, Nabal's wife, discovered what happened, she brought a great quantity of food to David and persuaded him to forgive Nabal's offense. She explained to David that he would have pangs of conscience and cause for grief if he shed blood without cause and indulge a desire for personal vengeance. She also reminded David that he had duties to fulfill to the Lord before and after he became king of Israel. She clearly implies that behaving unjustly would be an obstacle to his God-given mission. David responded to Abigail in these words, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your prudence and blessed be you who have kept me from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. David avoided doing an injustice because he was able to accept the counsel of a wise woman. On another occasion, when King David does behave unjustly, both by committing adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband Uriah killed, he is able to repent when the prophet Nathan reproaches him for his sins. David has sufficient docility to accept wise counsel. Now, understanding justice as what is due to another and as order in the soul, the two famous definitions, the order in the soul being brought about by the practice of the virtues, while the most important starting point of any inquiry into the nature of justice, it's still only a beginning. Virtuous persons are inclined and able to give others their due if they have acquired sufficient knowledge of what in fact is the just thing to do. Knowledgeable people without virtue are not likely to act justly towards others unless it happens to be in their self-interest. Virtuous individuals without knowledge of what is due to others will not be able to make much of a contribution, although they will be inclined to seek out the requisite knowledge. This knowledge cannot be acquired by simply adopting the prevailing opinions in a society. A work of discernment is necessary which will be facilitated by the right kind of education. Now Aquinas also offers a commentary on particular justice, which is directed to the private individual in two ways, and appropriately has two different names. 
The order of one private individual to another is governed by commutative justice. A $10,000 payment to a dealer for a car entitles a person to a vehicle worth the same. This form of justice is the easiest to grasp. What is owed is twofold. First, Aquinas says it is necessary to equalize thing with thing so that the one person should pay back to the other just so much as he has become richer out of that which belonged to the other. This form of commutative justice is also called contract justice because the parties agree to some fair exchange, a certain sum of money in exchange for a house, a car. Commutative justice also takes the form of restitution. Aquinas says restitution is in order when one person has what belongs to another, either with his consent, for instance, on loan or deposit, or against his will, as in robbery or theft. People have a very serious obligation to restore what has been taken unjustly. Such restitution is even necessary for salvation, says Aquinas. While commutative justice is mainly about buying and selling, it also deals with penal justice. Offenses against the citizens of a nation call for proportionate punishment. It is interesting to note that Aristotle devotes more attention to commutative justice than to distributive justice. Commenting on the justice section of the ethics, political philosopher Leo Strauss argues that Aristotle describes commutative justice as the bond of society. What Aristotle seems to mean is that fair exchange in buying and selling is crucial for the stability of society. People will not produce goods and services if they are habitually defrauded, and they will lose confidence in the fairness of their nation's economy. The recently publicized dishonesty of large companies in the United States, such as Enron and MCI WorldCom, as well as their auditors, has eroded confidence in corporate America with detrimental effects that will be felt for a long time. The loss of jobs and pension funds by Enron employees resulted from a violation of commutative justice by Enron executives. And many think that the stock market fell because of all these violations of commutative justice that took place, even though that word was not used. The other form of particular justice is called distributive. It governs the order of the whole towards the parts to which corresponds the order of that which belongs to the community in relation to each single person. Distributive justice distributes common goods proportionately. The community distributes common goods to individuals according as they are deserving because of some excellence or need. There will, of course, always be arguments as to who is more entitled to receive the common goods. But at times, nearly everyone will agree that a particular group of people will justly receive more material goods or services than others. Citizens agree that the political community should obviously spend much more money on the education of children than that of adults. The state and private entities provide primary and secondary education to young people between the ages of 7 and 18 or 19. Where the private educational institutions should receive direct or indirect aid is a disputed question. The recent Supreme Court decision upholding the constitutionality of school vouchers in the city of Cleveland is, in my judgment, an example of distributive justice. With $2,250 vouchers in hand, the poor and the disadvantaged will have the opportunity to choose private schools as an attractive alternative to inadequate public schools, especially in the inner city. Most parents will choose religiously affiliated schools since they are more numerous and affordable. 
Some deny, of course, that the high court's decision is an act of distributive justice, but label it a violation of the constitutional separation between church and state, and they also call it bad policy. In an editorial, the Boston Globe made this twofold argument, despite conceding that a state-sponsored audit revealed that only 10% of Cleveland students met basic proficiency standards and more than two-thirds dropped out or failed before graduation. The Globe's solution is to rely on proven reforms in public education. The Boston paper further argues that private schools can pick and choose their state-subsidized enrollees draining resources from the schools left behind and creating even greater divisions between poor students and successful ones. The Washington Post columnist George Will, on the other hand, had high praise for the decision. He said the opposition to school choice for the poor is the starkest immorality in contemporary politics. It is the defense of the strong, teacher unions, and comfortable, the middle class, against the weak and suffering inner city children. Happily, yesterday, socially disadvantaged children had their best day in court since Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, so wrote Will. The sharp disagreement between the Boston Globe and George Will indicates the difficulty of arriving at consensus on the meaning of distributive justice in particular cases. Disagreements on church-state issues, of course, are always more contentious and implacable than differences of opinion on many other political issues. The dispute between the supporters of the positions taken by Will and the Globe does not even raise all the pertinent issues. If religiously affiliated schools accept state money provided by the vouchers, they might be legally coerced or pressured by public opinion to water down their religious identity or to accept students who have no interest in receiving a religious formation. The existence of vouchers, furthermore, cannot be an excuse for accepting the poor performance of public schools in the inner city or elsewhere. Since many children will not be able to take advantage of vouchers, they will need better public schools in their neighborhood. Vouchers could benefit a significant number of needy families, but if they are widely used, steps must be taken to ensure the quality of all public schools and to uphold the religious identity of private institutions. I believe the public schools will fare better if they face competition from private schools, especially in the inner city. The failure of this nation to ensure quality education for the poor, especially minorities in the inner city, is an egregious violation of distributive justice. Another interesting aspect of distributive justice is the manner of determining the mean. The mean is observed not according to equality between thing and thing, but according to proportion between things and persons. So that namely as one person surpasses another, so also a thing which is given to one person surpasses the thing given to another. The equality between thing and thing is an equality according to the arithmetic mean. It refers to the practice of commutative justice whereby two persons exchange things of equal value. It doesn't matter who the persons are, whether rich or poor, king or commoner, a person must give the equivalent value in a fair exchange. With respect to distributive justice, the situation of the individual person is determinative. Only certain classes of people receive veterans benefits, Medicaid, Medicare, Social Security, public education. The mean follows geometrical proportion where inequality depends not on quantity but on proportion. The attainment of distributive justice depends very much on the prudence and moral virtue of those responsible for distributing common goods. Since citizens in democratic regimes can bring pressure to bear on rulers to act justly, 
They share in the responsibility for distributive justice. However, electoral persuasion will not be effective without sufficient knowledge and virtue in the electorate. For that kind of transformation to happen, democratic citizens must be suitably educated by the institutions of civil society, especially by the family and the university. In other words, for distributive justice to be effective, social justice will have to be practiced on a sufficiently wide scale. Why this is the case will now be explained. Most know that the mark of the moral person today, both within and outside the Catholic Church, has become dedication to human rights and especially social justice. The intellectual, moral, and theological virtues are hardly mentioned in social justice circles. Social justice, as presently understood, has little to do with personal virtue. The term social justice is really a relatively new concept in the history of theology and political philosophy. A Jesuit philosopher by the name of Taparelli D'Azeglio was the first to use the term around 1840. It was not until 1931 with the publication of Pius XI's Quadragesimo Anno that the concept of social justice officially entered into the patrimony of papal social thought. The question naturally arises whether social justice has any connection to the thought of Aquinas. As we all have noticed, it can have various meanings or even be ambiguous. Two common meanings of the term are a more equitable distribution of wealth through government intervention and a reconstruction of the social order through the reform of institutions. The second meaning, of course, is not without ambiguity. Still other meanings may include progressive opinions on political and social issues or volunteer work, say, in a soup kitchen, or making a donation for the relief of hurricane victims, or recognition of a wide variety of rights, especially for the disadvantaged. While these descriptions of social justice are helpful, they do not reveal the heart of the concept. Without more clarity, some good actions will not be accepted as acts of social justice, and the preconditions for its practice will not be recognized, namely the laborious effort to acquire knowledge of the common good and the equally laborious effort to prepare one's soul for action through the cultivation of the virtues. Some works of justice require very sophisticated knowledge and very great efforts to control pride, anger, and fear, as well as love of pleasure, money, honor, and power. In my judgment, the Catholic appeal to social justice in the 20th century should mean exactly what Thomas Aquinas meant by legal justice. As mentioned, he said, it is the virtue which directs all of the virtues to the common good. In Divini Redemptoris, another encyclical of Pius XI, he gives a Thomistic definition of social justice when he says, quote, it is of the very essence of social justice to demand from each individual all all that is necessary for the common good. This means that social justice is a virtue inclining persons to work for the common good of the family, the professions, voluntary associations, schools, neighborhoods, political community on the local, national, or international level. In this understanding of social justice, the duty of making oneself a neighbor to others and actively serving them becomes even more urgent. The more needy people are, in whatever area they may be. So writes the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1932. This Catholic perspective opens up vistas of service for individuals of widely differing talents, but implicitly suggests 
that various levels of knowledge and suitable dispositions are required for effective service. Consider all that would be necessary to be accomplished by many individuals to make sure that more college students graduate with the ability to read well, to write correctly, and to ponder questions pertaining to the best way to live and the meaning of the common good. Imagine all that individuals would have to know and do in order to help various communities address the problems of poverty at home and abroad. Now, the prevailing understanding of social justice as a reconstruction of the social order or a change in the system and a more equitable distribution of wages and material goods is accurate, but needs to be complemented by a stress on the importance of virtue, knowledge, and the common good. To address the corruption in business today, there's no doubt that structural changes such as stiffer penalties and the certainty of jail time for white collar offenders, as well as better regulations and supervision, will contribute to the reform of the business world. But unless chief executive officers and the air accountants have good character, the structural changes will only go so far. There is just no substitute for the correction of morals. Secondly, devising structural changes that will have a positive effect in the various areas of society requires the kind of broad and deep knowledge that is the fruit of much study and experience. Think of the knowledge and virtue that would be required to reform the healthcare system in America. Finally, the orientation of social justice as a common good must always be kept in mind so that it is not unduly narrowed or understood as separate from the other virtues. The Thomistic and papal understanding of legal social justice is very difficult to understand today because it includes two important themes which are foreign to the prevailing modern mentality, namely virtue and the common good. Neither of these figures prominently in the contemporary understanding of justice and the public interest. In addition, there is an insufficient realization that a great deal of effort must be made to know what social justice demands in a particular situation. Social justice activists tend to stress a goodwill and raise consciousness rather than the laborious struggle to acquire knowledge and virtue. Once again then, as noted previously, my point in calling attention to what seem to be the limitations in the contemporary understanding of social justice is not to deny the legitimacy and importance of structural changes and the more equitable distribution of goods. Rather, it is merely to underscore the narrowness and one-sidedness of the horizon within which these concerns typically come to expression today. And in this light, my proposal is simply that a recovery of the fuller Thomistic papal understanding of social justice would immeasurably benefit Catholic social thought in the United States. It would enable the bishops and priests to show the connection between the acquisition of knowledge, the practice of virtue, and the quest for justice. Doesn't even common sense indicate that vices harm social, economic, and political life? Everyone can think of examples to show the harmful influence of pride or excessive ambition, greed, laziness, envy, anger, not to mention lust and intemperance regarding drink. Laws can and should mitigate the evil effects of these vices by such means as stiff penalties for drunk driving and child pornography. Still, it is important for the churches to inspire people to overcome their faults and vices, or at least to maintain a constant struggle. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. 
please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.